The Open Pantry Podcast is a hospitality podcast where I interview people within the hospitality industry about both their lives in and outside the industry. Hey, I'm Sean DeVries and I'm your host. I hope you really enjoy these episodes. My podcast aims to show that the thing that links all people in hospitality is a want to be creative, support each other and always do better. I really hope you enjoy the episode, so make sure you subscribe and always leave me some feedback. Enjoy. Welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for yet another episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and spending some time with me. As always, uh, a fantastic guest that's about to come up. In the last couple of months, I've really wanted to get more people who are really creating change in our industry uh, for the better to be on the show. So you'll see that come through 2020. It's great to great to start off with the Food for Change CEO and founder, Matt Donovan. Matt, how are you? Sean, mate, yeah, I'm good under the circumstances. So um, yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. As we as we take this in the middle of May, that feels like. I don't even know what this feels like anymore. Um, but mate, it's it's great to have you on. As I've um, as I've learned more about uh, food for change in the last couple of weeks, I've just been really really impressed um, at, at what you guys are doing. So, do you want to talk about how you sort of started out being a, a social entrepreneur? Because I think it's I think it's going to be a really cool story. Yeah, it's. Um, I guess it's a story of and i quote steve jobs a little bit about connecting the dots and things just kind of falling in place no i don't think very few people and i guess the social entrepreneurs that i speak to and other founders you never start out trying to do that like that's it's definitely not the case you just Mm -hmm. kind of somehow wind up in a situation where things kind of line up Mm -hmm. and just the obvious way forward on that sort of thing so my journey to getting this point is literally like I'm 40, I turn 40 in December. It is 40 years to get to yeah. this particular point. And there's wholly the factors across those years that kind of influence that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a couple of big ones. And so for me in 2016, um, I found myself in a, I guess, fortunate and unfortunate situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the middle of a divorce, um, had to basically sell a big farm we had in New South Wales. Um, And for the benefit of my son and the whole situation, um, we relocated to Melbourne um, so I could take care of him basically. Sure. Um, So at the time I had a commercial cleaning business. Um, It was quite successful Mm -hmm. um, and was in a, great spot but because of the divorce had to shut it down and obviously liquidate everything and do all those ins and outs Mm -hmm. it left me in a situation where i could spend a couple of years looking after my son um, and just focusing in on him on the times where i had him which Mm -hmm. is incredibly um fortunate position to be in and i'm very grateful um (laughs) to have that opportunity yeah but then he was going to his mum's on a Monday and a Tuesday and I was getting extremely bored, to be perfectly honest. Um, <laughs> like, what the am I going to be doing, like, days where I don't have him? Like, yeah, when you got to yeah. running around, it's hectic, it's fine, it gets you occupied. Yes. Um, so I kind of started volunteering and I chose to volunteer in the food relief sector. 
Um, and there's a whole heap of factors. So when I was a kid, my mum had a restaurant on Kangaroo Island. Oh, wow. Um, a bit of a farming background. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really importantly, um, at one point in my life, well, just before he passed away, my father was homeless. Um, and oh. I got a call got a call from a hospital, um, Liverpool Hospital in Sydney, and they said, your dad's here, he's dying, basically. Wow. okay. We hadn't spoken for quite a few years. Um, and in hindsight, I can tell the story because I now understand exactly what's going on. Right. But we dropped out of communication when I was living in London um, mm-hmm. back in about 2008. Yes. And just never heard from him for no rhyme or reason or anything I could perfectly understand. Um, right. And became very angry about it mm. and very confused. I got this call from the hospital, um, so I was like, holy crap, um, went to the hospital um, and met someone from Mission Australia um, right. and basically was told, we, your dad's been homeless, um, we've been looking after him for the last couple of years, Wow! Uh, and all this really heavy stuff, and he passed away shortly after that. I'm sorry um, to hear that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's... It's processed now. It's quite difficult, obviously. Um, mm. So it's happens. a lot to take in all at one time, right? Huge. And it was probably a, it was a couple of weeks before uh, my son was born. Um, wow. And it was a very emotional kind of mm. time. And I kind of parked it quite mm. a bit. Yeah. Then getting that extra time when I got to Melbourne gave me a lot of time to think and process um, and... At that particular point, I had all this stuff, so I opened everything up um, and found he had actually had cancer for like 10 years sure. um, was given, given a terminal diagnosis like 10 years prior, was right. told he only had a couple of months to live and did probably what I would have done and had a great bloody time. <laughs> Some of the photos were quite interesting. Um, right. Travelled around the world, just doing lots of random stuff and spent all his money and had a great laugh. Right. Which was, which was awesome. But then he lived. Right. So that's what led to his homelessness because he ran out of money. Yeah. And he didn't tell anyone about, he didn't tell anyone he had cancer? No. I was living wow. in London um, and someone said to me quite a, few, quite a few years later, what would your dad want you to do? Mm. And he wanted me to stay in London. Basically, and I would have come home if I'd known about it. So, yeah, right. to me, kind of how I think it got processed. Mm. It's just, who knows exactly? But um, yeah, yeah, obviously it had a profound effect. Um, yeah, that's definitely. So after all that got processed and spending that time, and I started volunteering down in Melbourne, mm-hmm. uh, just in the food relief sector. I just wanted to give back to organisations that had helped um, mm. my family, I guess. Awesome. And kind of quite nigh, I guess very naively thought, just didn't understand how bad food insecurity was in Australia. Mm. Um, like to hear like previous to COVID-19, up to 3 million people each year seek food relief um, and one third of them to be children wow. is mind-blowing. Um mm. The hard fact is up to about 70 to 80,000 people, so one-third of them kids, each month when they go looking for food, actually get turned away. 
So they're like, right. if they turn up at a food relief organisation, sorry, we don't have enough for you. Right. Um, wow. I didn't know that. Which is a bit, which is a bit hectic, yeah. Mm. And I had this day, it was, it was a Wednesday afternoon, I picked my son up from um, daycare, we went shopping, bought all the food for the week, um, do whatever you do on Wednesday, and then mm. Thursday, I'm just... Um, plodding around he's like dad I'm hungry I'm like yeah that's fine mate just grab a banana and he's like there are none and I'm like what do you mean like we yeah. bought eight yesterday. like there was yeah. eight bananas he ate them in overnight just because <laughs> he's allowed to run around whatever fruit he wants out of the fruit bowl yes and I was just like holy crap like that's fine for me I can yes. go out and buy food but if yes. you've got to grow you know you've got three kids at home and yeah. they're all going sort of thing yeah and then i couldn't imagine the shame and if you're brave enough to go out and ask for the food and they get turned away yeah like what do you do from there what do you do like when your kids go hungry they get two minute noodles yay yeah yeah that that's basically it mm. so i was just like well this is ridiculous like i can do something like i've got the time mm-hmm. and i've enough position to have the money where I don't need to be paid. Yes. Um, so why don't I just do something about it? So yeah, that came from the original idea was basically why don't we just grow some fresh fruit and veggies um, and feed some people. Um, right. <laughs> the original goal was like, imagine if we could do enough food for 10,000 meals. Um, it would be sensational. Um, so we planted in on the 25th of Feb uh, 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all that lead-in time, all that building, it took a little while to get to that point. Uh, we've just ticked over 130,000 meals that we've grown on the farm. Wow, um, in, that's amazing. In a three-year period, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's mind-blowing. And this year, um, a very the farm has kindly given us a lot more land and we've got enough space now to do about 100,000 meals a year. Which wow. Is Whereabouts um, is the farm? It's in Melbourne. Uh, it's out towards um, Monash University. We don't yeah, right. tend to um, put out the space too often. Yeah, because we're out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Give it a little bit um, under the radar. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's an awesome space and it's really, really, really amazing. And the kind of that's I guess what kicked it off. Um, mm-hmm. And it's evolved into a completely different I guess kind of beast in a way um, we've got a few things uh, going on at the moment um, in and around food rescue and different things like that um, mm-hmm. which is really exciting um, but yeah that's I guess the nutshell of how it started and how I kind of fell into being a social entrepreneur on that yeah. side of things what, what made you um, what made you want to start something different like Food for Change and not help um, you know, the existing framework kind of, you know, move up because obviously we know, you know, there are a lot of great organisations um, out there that do this, most notably someone like Food Bank um, uh, across the country who, you know, deal with obviously donations from supermarkets and other vendors and, and manufacturers. Is this Was this just a point that you saw a gap in the market that you thought was more beneficial to people? Yeah, um, originally I was just like, how is there not enough food? Yeah. So all 
So we did the initial market research and everyone was like, we just don't have enough food and we predominantly don't have enough fresh food. Like, yep. That was I'm like, well, it's not hard, like for me, like I don't find it hard growing food. Mm. Like, why don't we just put some seeds in the ground, give them 14 weeks and then we'll donate the food. Right. That was, that, that was pretty much it. And to me, it seems pretty simple. Um, they're saying they don't have enough food just by everything going on. Um, and we're like, well, let's just create more food um, mm. directly for a particular purpose. So that was kind of the original thinking. Um, the other thing I didn't want to do is replicate anything. Sure. So our model model's a little bit unique. So there's two and a half thousand eight organisations around the country, roughly, who are feeding people every wow. day. Wow. So there's a huge network there. So there's no point us becoming another one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't do that. We also use the existing infrastructure that they already have to move our food around. So we don't own the land. We don't have any vehicles. We don't even own the crates the food goes out in. Right. Um, we're entirely run by volunteers. Uh, so it's a very, very low cost model um, and allows us basically to generate one meal for about 10 cents effectively. Wow. wow. Um, so we're like, there's no point replicating what's already out there. The mm. organisation like, will harvest on a Wednesday or a Friday um, from about 6am onwards to about 11am. Um, they'll come and pick it up at 12 and it'll be in people's homes that afternoon. So it'll mm. be fresher than what anybody can buy in the shops. Mm. Um, so it's nice and efficient and, yeah, and it works pretty well. Were you surprised that um, when obviously you did your research and wanting to do Food for Change, like... Were you surprised how many aid organisations are actually were supplying food to people around Australia? Yeah, it's mind blowing. Like, you just don't hear about them. Um, no, and you can't actually find them. It's uh, unique. It can be quite difficult. It's uh, obviously we'll get into our further expansion moving forward in the conversation, but yeah, it is really hard to actually find these aid organisations um, out there. Mm. What are you- there. Why do you think so many of them exist, Matt? Like, uh, do, you, do you find they're all serving a purpose? Because what I suppose when you say to me, you know, over 2,000 in Australia, like I go, well, is that because it needs to be super hyper-local in order to get to the people who need it and that's the reason why? Or is it, you know, people who may, like going back to your point before, who may have just created another infrastructure for the sake of infrastructure but but obviously for a really good cause. Yeah. Um, it's probably, I would say mainly um, to do with locality. Mm. Um, so in Australia, we have 525 council areas across the country. Wow. Um, so it averages out between three to six aid organisations inside a local council area. Yeah. Um, kind of makes sense on that sort of front. I'm sure there is... Um, instances where things are getting duplicated and they don't need to be there but people are doing the right thing so you've got an extra soup van feeding people so what yeah yeah, yeah good point so um yeah i think that's that's the main reason and we're such a big country it, logistically it makes no sense for to move food huge distances um, on mm. that side so mm. that's why i think we have so many local organizations who are doing it um a majority of them are church-based as well yeah. um so 
they will obviously be in all the local communities and the other majority are school-based, um, so they're actually feeding kids in school on that sort of thing. Yeah, that's yeah. probably the... It's probably the toughest one, isn't it? I mean, the, the you know, feeding kids at school and, and how that happens and, and that kind of stuff. I don't think it's really until we come into really obvious contact with someone who's in need that we understand there is actually need. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, look, when you look at the figures, it's one in 10. So mm. if you have 10 friends, one of them are food insecure at some point in their life. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. And we hear some crazy stories like I live in quite an affluent part of um, Melbourne, um, but we see people sleeping in their cars along the bay in the peninsula. Um, they're homeless. They've lost their house for whatever reason. It could be divorce, could be illness. Yeah. But they'll still be going to work. Um, they'll yeah. still be going to the gym, so they'll shower at the gym. Shower at the gym, yeah. And you nobody would know what's happening. Um, but if you walk along at night time, you'll see hundreds of cars out. Yeah. What have you seen happen over the last couple of months in regards to COVID? Has that changed any of your any of your planning or you're obviously close to the forefront of of you know, the crisis is in is actually how it's actually affecting people from an economic standpoint. Like what have you seen change in the last couple of months? Um, for us it's like our planning, our mission is to alleviate food insecurity in the country. So it hasn't changed from that point of view. It's mm. just made it harder. Um, what we've noticed is um, lots of organisations who are feeding people are run by volunteers. Mm. Most volunteers sit in the age bracket of 50 plus. Yep. So they're obviously very vulnerable during COVID, yep. which means that they're not out volunteering. Um, so we're seeing a huge amount of organisations actually shut down and stop feeding people. And what all that's done is redistribute the, I guess, the, the need into other organisations and we're getting calls saying we need more food. We're just being inundated with people. Um, so that's that's been quite, not distressing, but um, I don't know the right way to process it, to be honest. It's quite alarming, I guess, to be in a situation and it's only going to get worse. Obviously, the economic impact is going to be here for a couple of years. Um, so, yeah, it's huge on that side of things. For us as an organisation and how we run day-to-day, -day, the main impact has been usually we'd have 40 volunteers a week coming from corporates um, throughout Melbourne and that's obviously hit zero. So... Um, we've got a couple of core volunteers and we're lucky we've got a farm so there's heaps of space that's no problem with social distancing or anything like that. It just means we're spe spending extra days out at the farm to get that food out to people. If um, What do you think from a policy framework from, from councils, state and national governments that Australia could be doing better in order to feed the people who need it the most? What, what, what sort of roadblocks are you seeing with inside this space that need to be put down? Yeah, good question. Um, I guess, like, ultimately, Australia as a country has enough food. Like, yep. So that's not the issue. So um, we can grow enough, we can produce enough. 
it really comes down to probably an awareness factor um, on the greater community. And I think keeping food local is probably one of the key, key things. Okay. Um, so that local food network that used to exist 100 years ago mm. is slowly disappearing. Mm. So that we have that impact of the most vulnerable not being able to access that food inside their local community and that support. Yes. What you would do about it is a very good question. And that's, I mean, when you're looking at massive change like that, um, it, it, that doesn't happen easily. Um, it's much easier to try and fit inside a system mm. um, and change that way as opposed to trying to change the system. The system we have at the moment is obviously broken um, and there's different things we could do, but it, I don't think it's going to change. Yeah, I, I just wonder if it's just going to become, you know, part of, you know, part of some kind of legislation from a, uh, from a state government or federal government standpoint that, it, you know, um, you know, it's illegal to waste food or it's illegal for restaurants or cafes to throw food out like it is in South Korea. Like, I, you know, it's, um, it just, it doesn't, it seems like it's going to be multiple answers to try and, to try and help, you know, the food insecurity part, um, of this country, because it is quite interesting, you know, we're, we're both uh, around the same age, Matt, and I'm sure we would have seen the last, especially 20 to 30 years, food exports um, been, a, been a massive part of Australia's, you know, development, especially into Asia. And sometimes I think we're, we're, we're sending our best produce, obviously, because they can get a better price overseas now the country while we bring in product sometimes that is not as healthy, as nutritious, as good for us. And, and it sort of counterbalances itself, you know, you're, you're, you're not looking after your local people with a food supply that's already there. You know, it's uh, it's quite an interesting paradigm. And we like, we're such a fortunate country where we have this range of climates all Absolutely. year round, mm-hmm. which means we can, one of the few countries in the world that can grow everything all year. Absolutely. We don't need to import a single amount of food. No. Like, there's, there's no reason for it. Um, but yeah. <laughs> That's the world, like where do you go with that? Um, that's the world we live in, and that's what's developed over time for a whole heap of various reasons, and that's what we've got. So we just need to work with it. Yeah. So I mean, what's next for Food for Change? You've you've you guys have been around for three years. You're doing amazing work in Victoria. Like, do you want to take this nationally with this kind of program? It sounds very very smart the way you've laid it out. Yeah. Um, so we're doing a, uh, two things. Um, the growing side in Melbourne is going fantastic and we've identified like 20 key hubs we would like to expand that to mm-hmm. across the country. Amazing. Um, our real focus has been in and around food waste and food rescue. Mm-hmm. So during, I guess, the whole process of um, starting the farm and getting out and speaking to people and seeing what's really going on the ground, we found a bit of an interesting scenario um, where all these organisations are coming up to us, like local restaurants and cafes and things like that, and saying, we've got food, we want to donate it. Sure. Um, and we're like, yeah, like that, that's amazing. And originally it's like it wasn't what we did. We didn't rescue food at all. We just mm-hmm. threw food. 
Mm-hmm. But obviously, we're going to take it because we've got the distribution and we can get it out to people. Sure. But it kept happening and happening and happening. And I'm like, what's really going on here? Like, there's other organizations, Food Bank, Oz Harvest, Second Bite, they are all out rescuing food. Like, why are you coming to us? Like, we are such a small organization, especially in the beginning. Like, it just didn't make any sense. And we kept getting the same answer over and over again is the food that we want to donate, and it could be up to half a pallet, um, is not enough to warrant food bank or Oz Harvest or Second Bite to come and collect it from us. And we're just chatting. Yes. Yes. So they're set up, set up in an old distribution model. Um, so in Melbourne, the food bank warehouse is at Yarraville. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an amazing huge, space. Huge. <laughs> And the work they do is phenomenal. Like Amazing just, people. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But what they can't do is they're not going to drive from Yarraville and pay all the tolls and mm. come all the way from Andrigan for 10 loaves of bread. No joke. Drive mm-hmm. like, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, surely we can do something about it. Like, effectively, I know there's 10 organisations in my local area around the farm that can take this food. So why don't we just match them up? Um, so back in 2017, we started building um, a web-based platform to match that up. Amazing. Um, which is awesome. And in the meantime, we're having uh, chats to IGA um, around sponsorship for the farm and a few different things. Um, coincidentally, they were um, having conversations with the New South Wales EPA because their head office is in Sydney about food waste. Uh, Their business is set up like a franchise slash licensing agreement. So all individual store owners, um, so quite small. They don't have a huge amount of food waste, um, but they are chucking a lot of food in bin. Um, So sometimes, like I say, things just line up and we sat down with them and presented this concept of, well, We've got a platform, we just plug your store in, we'll provide them with a food relief organisation and they will actually uh, get the food locally yep. um, sometime in a couple of minutes. So we've been trialling that for about two years now. It's in 33 stores in New South Wales um, and we're rescu- rescuing per quarter from the 33 stores about 40,000 meals. Wow. So they've got 1,400 stores across the country. Um, and we're in the process of expanding that throughout the network, which is, yeah, which is incredible. And one of the amazing things that happened, so we trialled the um, first store in Sydney, um, the stores at Meadowbank, um, and we partnered with them, um, St Vincent's de Paul, um, in Sydney to take the food. And we did I actually physically didn't do all that partnering. It was nothing to do with me. I'm more, I guess the tech side of things. Yeah. Um, so I turn up on the first the first time we have a, a collection and we go around the store and the IJ managers and obviously all the head office staff are there and they're like, okay, this looks great. The trolls, it's running smoothly. Um, some Vinnies come and pick up the food. We just follow that process of yep. where it's going. Um, and they take the food out to one of their sites in Sydney and it is attached 
and to my grandmother's nursing home. Um, <laughs> she passed away, passed away shortly after my father. And wow. while him were estranged, the only time I ever used to see him was when I would visit my grandmother at the nursing home. He would right. uh, be there. And I was like, okay, this is a little bit weird. Um, but it turns out that he was actually getting help from them, um, getting food and supplies and all that sort of stuff. And it was just one of those moments I was just like, holy shit, like this is the first bit of food rescue we're doing um, and it's going directly to an organisation that actually fed my father. Yeah, um, that's amazing, isn't it? And it's just one of those things I was just like, I know this is what I'm meant to be doing. Yeah, yeah. Which is pretty cool. Um, so we're busting our asses at the moment to try and roll it out nationally and get as many people fed as possible. Um, that's the goal. Good for you. What's, um, what's, what's the one thing that you would want people to know coming out of this in which they can actually create change for themselves and help, help people who are food insecure, Matt? Yeah, I guess the, um, one of the key things um, we're putting together as well is a massive big database that people can actually jump on our website, which will hopefully be released in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And if they've got this food, if you've got a lemon tree, if you've got an orange tree, you've got, you accidentally plant six, six zucchini plants and they go nuts and you want to donate some food, um, you'll be able to jump on and um, do that. In the meantime, like just get out and share that food amongst the community. I think if people are growing, uh, they've got excess, they don't know what to do, don't chuck it in the bin. Mm. Just go give it to someone. And you'll be surprised how many people actually do need it, um, especially at the moment where things are a little bit tight. And that'll help foster that bit of community as well um, and keep that food out of the, obviously, the tips and stuff. So it's much better yeah. for the environment. Just get out and share what you've got if you don't need it is probably the easiest way to do it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me on the, on the podcast today. What's the best way that people can find out about more, uh, more about what you're doing at Food for Change, Matt? Yeah, uh, website, foodforchange.org.au. Um, drop us an email, info at foodforchange.org.au. Um, yeah, or follow us on the socials. Beautiful. Matt, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Open Pantry Podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it. As always, please look in the bio of this podcast and always send me a voicemail message. I'd love to know what you think of the podcast or just follow us on Instagram under Open Pantry Consulting. Until next time, stay well.